Yesterday I was comparing writing achievements with my daughter Zoe. She had a 21st speech to write for a friend. I was working on this sermon for you. She finished long before I did, but not before she'd worked out an angle or theme and thought of fitting illustrations and stories about her friend. Zoe invested some thoughtful preparation in the coming event, last night's 21st, to honour her friend. On Tuesday down at Pillu, Paul Wong and Anna Hugo had their wedding ceremony. Since I led the ceremony, I know something about the thoughtful preparation they put into the ceremony and the reception afterward. But only Paul and Anna would know just how much thoughtful preparation for that big day was put in. In the case of a wedding, of course, it's all the thoughtful preparation they've put into having a healthy marriage relationship that's going to matter the most. But there are so many areas where people must make thoughtful preparation for the event or fail. Hopefully all the HSC students with a St Mark's connection have worked that out by now, given their exams start in, over, in just over a week. But job presentations, home renovations and holiday accommodations all require thoughtful preparation. Even sport requires thoughtful preparation. I've been really struck by how much preparation Australian cricket star batsman Steve Smith puts into a test match. And it's not just all the training and the, the hours of practice. It even goes down to the equipment he brings. He brings 8 to 13 bats to a test match. He says this, It's too many, but part of the preparation is to make sure you've got everything right. And for me, if for some reason the bat feels a bit different and I need to change it, then I like to. I've always carried a lot of equipment around with me. That lot of equipment uh, also includes the batting gloves he wears. He, in a full day of test cricket in the middle of an Australian summer, he says, I would use somewhere between 12 and 15 pairs of gloves. I change every 15 minutes when I'm batting. And part of his preparation is to put numbers on each of the pairs so he doesn't mix up the pairs when he dries them out overnight to wear the next day. He's the sort of player who often gets the next day, unlike most of them. <laughs> lack of preparation betrayed, or lack of equipment betrayed the lack of thoughtful preparation for the coming of the bridegroom in Jesus' parable here in Matthew 25. Jesus tells this parable because how we prepare for the return of Jesus really matters. It has eternal repercussions. You see at the end of the parable in verse 13, keep watch because you do not know the day or the hour, which leads to our things that make you go, hmm, verse for today. Actually, it's not a verse this week. It's the whole parable. In Matthew 25, 1-13, what exactly is the mistake of the foolish girls and how does that apply to us today? What, what does Jesus mean by this parable? That, that's been my dilemma. Now, the Bible translation I have says virgins and other translations will say for the same word maidens. Clearly, their virginity is not necessary for this parable. It just tells you that they're young, unmarried girls. So I'm going to speak of the wise and foolish girls. 
So let's now closely look at the parable and see both the thoughtful and the foolish preparations for the coming bridegroom. My understanding of this parable was helped by some reading on first century Palestinian wedding customs. What I learned was that the groom, his family and friends on the day of the wedding would walk to the bride's house and it's at the bride's house that the wedding ceremonies were normally held. And then after that, there was a procession and generally to the home of the bridegroom where feasting began and could take place for a number of days. The processions often took place at night when torches were made for a spectacular display. And clearly all of that is is assumed or presupposed in Jesus' parable. The ten girls were going out to meet the bridegroom. Then they would have their place in the procession to the bridegroom's house for the feast. So verse 5 The bridegroom was a long time in coming and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. In fact, he's a really long time coming, verse 6. At midnight the cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Because the events take place at night, people tend to think this is the journey to the bridegroom's house to commence the banquet. The girls have been hanging around outside the bride's house for a long while, so there's no problem that they're sleeping. For five of them, though, the problem arises because they haven't thoughtfully prepared for the bridegroom. If they had, they would have brought extra oil. Contrast the five wise girls of verse 4. The wise ones, however, took oil in jars along with their lambs. When the cry, here comes the bridegroom, is is announced, the lamps need trimming, which means cutting off the top of the wick to a crisp point so it will burn clean and brightly and not be dim and smoky. It's no use, though, the foolish ones trimming the wick. They don't have enough oil to last the procession. So they have to go and buy some And to go and buy someone, of course, involves waking up somebody. It's midnight after all. All of this makes them very late. They miss the procession, completely miss it. Verse 10, the bridegroom arrives. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet. The procession's over. They got in the banquet and the door was shut. And now comes the punch in the guts for the five foolish girls and for us. The bridegroom won't let them in. Verse 11, Lord, Lord, open the door for us. But he replied, truly I tell you, I don't know you. This is brutal, this this section here. It's not like they they try and slip in late and, and unnoticed, like someone late to a wedding service slipping in the back row. It isn't that they're, they're let in and they feel a bit embarrassed but enjoy the rest of the evening, though feel a bit awkward toward the bride and the groom. No, these are words of rejection. I tell you, I don't know you. There's a, a finality about these words. They aren't getting in tonight or next week or ever. And they shouldn't expect an invitation to the first anniversary party or the first child's baptism either. As far as the groom is concerned, they're blacklisted for life. They're each 
In other words, persona non grata, unacceptable and unwelcome people. What have the five done to deserve the treatment? Does it seem a bit rough for forgetting some oil? Well, it's more than being forgetful. They're not bringing spare oil is evidence that they haven't thought about the coming of the bridegroom. They didn't think enough about the bridegroom to be ready for his coming. They had one job, one job, to meet and greet the groom and give him a procession, and they couldn't even do that. They were supposed to be ready, and they weren't. Their actions, or lack of them, were actually due to inexcusable carelessness. They didn't care enough about the bridegroom to thoughtfully prepare. The other five girls, though, they wisely thought about their role in the procession and they prepared. They had the extra oil ready because in the first century, wedding processions, the timings of weddings were always imprecise. There was no way of knowing the girls reasoned when the bridegroom would make his appearance. He may well be late. You couldn't know for sure exactly when the procession would begin. They needed to bring extra oil. The sensible took oil in jars. Well, what does Jesus want us to learn from the wise and the foolish girls? Let's think about thoughtful preparation for the coming king. I worked in the National Gallery in Canberra in 1982. I was working with a shop fitting company and my boss and I were installing display cases into which gallery staff placed precious vases and sculpture. I remember the rush and hive of activity the gallery was as opening night came closer and closer. The curators and art handlers were busy setting up displays. Cleaners were, were everywhere. Painters were doing finishing touches. And Billy and I were moving from level to level, setting up our display cases. It added to our pressure when we were carrying one sheet of toughened glass. The size of the sheet was probably the size of the blue background behind me. That was our biggest sheet. I think it was the glass sucker that was faulty rather than me who put it on. Anyway, with toughened glass, you can smash it as hard as you want with a hammer in the centre and nothing will happen but hit it on the edge and it explodes. It was unfortunate that it was the biggest sheet in our collection because uh, it exploded and went for 50 more metres pieces of glass across the gallery. That added to our busyness that, that week. For you see, Queen Elizabeth herself was coming to open the gallery. The coming of the Queen gave us a deadline and we had to get as much completed before night time on October 12, 1982. The coming of royalty, the coming of King Jesus, is why Jesus told the parable of the wise and foolish girls. Have a glance back up to verse 1 of chapter 25. He introduces his parable with, At that time the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet 
the bridegroom. Notice the opening words, at that time. When you see that at that time, you, you naturally look back up to work out what time is he referring to. You look into chapter 24 and you don't have to look far. You get to verse 42. Therefore keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. Matthew 24 and 25 are just one of several places in the New Testament where the future return of Jesus is coming, this coming of the Messiah, of the King. And this promise brings an expectation that when Jesus returns, it'll be good for those who are his people. They'll be gathered and resurrected for eternity. And it'll be a bad day for those who aren't his people, who haven't taken him as king seriously. They'll get what they want, life without the king. The problem is, though, that the good life will only be with the king, the good life that Benjamin's getting a taste of now. For the rest, it is hell. So this parable is all about thoughtful preparation for the coming king, the coming of Jesus. Those who are wise prepare for the king. Those who are foolish aren't prepared. We do not know when he, Jesus the king, will become the only thing that has any importance to us. But on the day he comes, he will be the only thing that has any importance to us. Everything else we do in life, everything else we give our energies to in life, they will be far, far, far secondary beside this one Jesus. That day will come. We're told in verse 13 to keep watch. Keep watching for the king doesn't mean stand looking up in the sky. It means expect the return of the king and be prepared. For the girls, being prepared meant thoughtful planning of their involvement in the procession. So they needed to bring extra oil. For us, what will thoughtful planning for the coming of King Jesus mean? How do you prepare for the king to come. Well, you could skate around the New Testament and come up with words like acknowledge his authority, trust him, obey him, live for him, depend on him. In chapter 25, though, Jesus has one idea, it's serve him. And I get that from the next parable from verse 14 onwards. It's the parable of the bags of gold or bags of talents as the older versions have it. A talent is money. It was worth about 20 years of a labourer's wages, so a lot of money. You might like to read the parable yourself later, but to summarise, it's about a master who goes away and entrusts his servants to grow the family business. To do so, he gives them some working capital, some, some bags of money. When the master returns after a long time, he calls in each servant to see what they've done with the money entrusted to them. He commends the two servants who've doubled the original capital, five bags to ten bags, two bags to four bags. So look at verse 21 of chapter 25. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. That is not the master's response to the third servant. That servant returned the one bag he was given. He kept it safe by hiding it in a hole he dug in the back garden. The master gives that son 
servant, a tongue lashing. Verse 26, you wicked, lazy servant. The master tells him he could have at least deposited the one bag with a bank and earned interest. That he didn't do that reveals his heart toward his master. He wasn't interested in serving the master. He wasn't really a servant of the master. He was just a servant of himself. So he's rejected. Just like the five girls who were shut out of the banquet in verse 30, throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There's an obvious nod there, isn't there, to the judgment of anyone who doesn't take Jesus seriously enough to serve him. Notice that the girls all look like they belong to the bridegroom. They were all dressed up nice in whatever bridesmaid, whatever the, the young girls wore in those days for a wedding. They all had their torches. In this parable, all three look like servants. They probably wore the same fluoro green with master's proprietary limiting embroidered on their heart. But it's not enough to look like a servant because Jesus knows our hearts. Jesus knows if we're a servant. So what will thoughtful planning for the return of King Jesus look like for you and for you and for you? Well, it'll look like whatever you can find to do to serve him. That'll involve prayer. It'll involve showing love and kindness to others. It might involve fulfilling a ministry at church. It'll involve you not keeping all your money for yourself. It'll involve obeying his commands as set out in the Bible. It doesn't mean you're perfect. You can't be. That's why Jesus died and our sin can be forgiven when we trust and serve him. Now, so many of you are doing this already. Keep it up. Be encouraged by this passage that you're doing the right thing. But if you never think about serving Jesus, if you never think of yourself as his servant and wonder what he might have you do in a situation, then Jesus would call you foolish. It's not living according to the reality around you. The reality is that Jesus is coming back and you aren't ready to meet him. You aren't going to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. It'll be throw him in the darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. If that's you, I beg you to reconsider. There is forgiveness and a fresh start for any who'll turn to Christ and start to serve him. In addition to all the equipment Steve Smith assembles for a test match, he also does a lot of visualisation. Like a lot of elite sportsmen who are trained to visualise themselves acting well in the game. He believes visualisation to be a really important part of his batting preparation. And I heard him describe what he did before playing an Ashes test against England. I lay there and focus on Stuart Broad, who's an English fast bowler, running in at me, and Chris Wokes running in at me, on where they're trying to bowl, where I want to hit them, where their fielders are, where my boundaries are. I visualise. The night before my first double hundred at Lord's, I didn't get a wink of, a wink of sleep, none whatsoever. He laid there visualising. Now Steve Smith admits 
When I do it, it's the wrong time. (laughs) Not sleeping all night. On the night before day one of a five-day test match, he will get very little, if any, sleep. It's amazing to think he then goes out and scores a double hundred. I'm not suggesting you go without sleep, but this idea of visualisation, I can help myself to thoughtfully prepare for my coming king by visualising standing before him and hearing those words, well done, good and faithful servant. I want to hear those words. And when I'm lagging in fervour, in motivation for serving Christ, when I need help to live wisely, I can visualise again receiving a smile and verse 21 Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. And when I hear those words, come and share your master's happiness. It'll have all been worth it. Let's pray.